Uh, we will be uh, meeting with the bishop, those who are the confirmands, on Saturday morning, which I mentioned in my email. So today we're going to be, and I actually am going to teach from the catechism today, so I think this is a really very um, more Anglican specific than maybe some of the other teachings that we've had, so I really want to work with our catechism. And so we're going to be working on part three today, and uh, it is called Belonging to Christ. And um, what it says here in the introduction is that the gospel is God's invitation to know him, to love and serve him as members of his family, and to be transformed into his likeness. God continually calls his people to grow deeper in our relationship with him. Thus, for Christians, knowing and loving God is life's central activity. And I think that's really beautifully put. But I'm also, I really appreciate that they didn't label this section something like Anglican practices or um, this is how you be a Christian or something like that. I really like the emphasis they've put instead on belonging to Christ. I don't know how many of you were here um, for uh, Keith Johnson's catechist uh, three weeks ago. If you didn't, weren't able to be here because of spring break, please listen to it online. It's on the catechesis page. Um, but I loved how he put a really great emphasis on the Holy Spirit in our lives, that because we belong to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit works in our life. And none of the things I'm going to talk about today could happen if we didn't have the Holy Spirit in our life and if we didn't belong to Christ. So that is, um, I think, the foundation I want to lay for you. I don't want you in any way to see any of these practices that I'm talking about today is somehow the way you kind of work your way up the ladder and you become more spiritual. Um, that isn't what it's about in Christianity. We receive the gift of the Spirit. And because we have the gift of the Spirit, we long to know him better. And that's what these practices are about. It's really important when you are praying, reading your Bible, that you, you frame it to God, what your intent is for the day. Lord, I am doing this because I want to know you better. I am doing this because I need your comfort. Always frame any practice that you have in an intent that is, has nothing to do with putting yourself up for God or doing what Christians are supposed to do. It has to do with we belong to Christ and because we belong to him, we want to know him better. So I'd like you to turn first to question 156 in the Catechism, which says, through the death and resurrection of Jesus and union with him by the Holy Spirit, I have fellowship with God as his adopted child. So what this is all about, belonging to Christ, has to do with union in Christ. And this, I want you to understand that union in Christ is what we're saved for. Yes, it's about forgiveness of sins. Yes, it's about being able to live a new life. But all of that happens in Christ. Um, Paul uses the word in Christ over a hundred times in his letters in the New Testament. For Paul, 
Being in Christ is what saved meant. Being in Christ means we receive forgiveness and are reborn in the spirit so that in his power we can enter into the transformation of our lives or sanctification. So question 157, I should pray then because God calls me to do it and because I was made for fellowship in him. There's a wonderful prayer of Augustine on page 66, um, a prayer for spiritual direction. Heavenly Father, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they are rest in you. So let's unpack this just a little bit. So John Calvin wrote about this extensively. I don't agree with everything John Calvin wrote, but I do very much appreciate his, in book two, how he speaks to the fact that our whole salvation in all its parts are comprehended in Christ. So the path to belonging to Christ um, is in this chart. I don't know if you can read this, but we first have a problem, and that is, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Remember that at that time, Paul writes, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. So we begin with our sinfulness, which in baptism we believe is wiped away and that we are given the Holy Spirit. Even as babies, they are given the Holy Spirit. We believe that that is a sign of an inward grace. And as we grow older or as we're baptized, we realize that we need to repent daily of the ways in which we separate ourselves from Christ. But we have to know that this leading, this gift of faith comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. I really believe that with my true heart. I know that when I was converted as an adult, I spent a whole fall feeling like, what is happening to me? Someone is calling me. And believe me, I was very resistant. But faith is the gift of God. And when we reach out in faith and when we are baptized, we are given the gift of salvation. And that gift is that we are brought into union with him and we are regenerated in the power of the Spirit. And this is ongoing the rest of our life. Evangelicals tend to talk about conversion as, oh, I was converted on December 12, 1973. But, you know, we, have, we spend our lives being converted. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we miss often, um, that we equate salvation with our initial conversion rather than our lifelong conversion or our lifelong relationship with Christ because we are in him. Um, and finally, we look to the final resurrection day when we will be complete and we will receive our new bodies and the tendency to sin will be removed from us. So being in Christ means we are forgiven. It means that Christ Righteousness is applied to us. Um, I know there's a lot of theories of the atonement kind of been talked about over Easter, but 
For me, the atonement means simply that Christ died for me, and because he died for me, a perfect life lived and was a perfect sacrifice. When God looks at me, he doesn't look at how well I'm doing. He sees Christ in me, and that is the basis of my acceptance in God, because we are in Christ. And because God has, given, has adopted us in Christ. You know, there's a lot about justify in terms of a courtroom and whether or not it's a legal fiction or not. Um, you don't need to know what I'm talking about there. But I just want you to know, it's an adoption court, okay? It is not a legal fiction. God adopts us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and he regenerates us. So the other part of being in Christ is that we are in Christ with each other. We are in Christ with the universal church, all believers living and having passed on. So salvation encompasses the full work of Christ on the cross. And it's, it encompasses his cross, ascension, excuse me, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. So I want you to think of these images from Christ's life and from the life of the church that encompass what it means to belong to Christ. So I'll give you a few examples of some of the ways in which Paul has used the phrase in Christ. We belong to Christ through the cross, we receive his redemption. And Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. And the resurrection, of course, is, is the resurrected life that gives us new life in Christ. Notice that after Christ was resurrected in our scriptures today, he said, receive the Holy Spirit, um, because it's his resurrection that all of us have a part of that resurrection as we're united within him, and how we have a part of that is we also have the Holy Spirit. So um, Paul says, but God, who in his rich mercy out of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. And that brings us to the ascension. And the ascension is that time when Jesus disappeared from the disciples and it says in Hebrew, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. And we are reigning there with him. And when we sing that wonderful um, Sanctus as we begin our Eucharist, just imagine yourself being lifted up to Christ in the heavenly places with all, all believers, the entire church. And finally, Pentecost. Um, it's written in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit. The Spirit, in the Spirit, you have been brought, you, you received your adoption 
to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Again, the relationship is here, the relationship that we have to God. So all of these are images. These, these images tell the story of what it means to be in Christ. Um, I am going to read uh, a brief quote from Calvin, which I think is one of my favorite quotes. So it goes like this. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If sanctification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same. If inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance to heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in the kingdom, untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and no other. So, that's what it means to belong to Christ. And I'm, I gave a short uh, introduction there, and now we will try to get into some of the other things that are spoken of in this. Um, this I don't know if anybody knows what this is a picture of. It's a dragon. And pardon? Nope, it's not Game of Thrones. It is. <laughs> It is the um, voyage of the downtrider. This is when Eustace is being undragoned. And I love that image because I think that's what happens to us in the Christian life is we become undragoned. And God has to peel off all this crunchy stuff and bring us into a greater relationship with him and a greater sense of who we are and so sanctification, which James will be talk, Father James will be talking about next week, what we, when we call, what we call sanctification is this process of a conversion, the lifelong process in which we become more like Christ through the transforming and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So um, to begin this, I'm going to skip around just a little bit. I want you to turn to question 252 in your catechism. And the reason I'm kind of calling your attention to this is I want you to see um, the richness of the catechism and that I'm really hoping that, especially for those of you who are being confirmed, that you are reading it. But um, what we're gonna be talking about today is the rule of life. Um, and in question 252, it says, a rule of life is a discipline by which I order my worship, work, and leisure as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And interestingly enough, rule in Latin doesn't refer to um, regula is the word. It doesn't refer to rules. I think that's kind of a common misconception. Rather, rule is a guidepost or a railing. It's something to stake our life on. So I love this picture because this is a structure, it's a lattice, and it is a structure in some ways that makes this unruly clematis grow up into this beautiful plant. 
Now, if you don't have a lattice for a um, clematis, I think you know, it'll just go all over the ground and you won't be able to see it. It'll be very unruly. And so this is a wonderful picture to me of the beauty of what can happen when we have a rule or a guidepost in which we can structure our lives. So it's establishing a rhythm in which we can shape our life. It's not meant to be legalistic. These are habits and you know everybody has habits. In fact, a really interesting question is to think about your habits and what do they say about your values? What are the things that you do every single day? And you might look at those and say, now what is that saying about who the person I want to become to be or what I value in life? Um, it's developing habits that help us open ourselves to the transforming love of God. That's all it is. So it doesn't necessarily have to be reading your Bible. It can be taking a walk in nature. It can be listening to Beethoven. Anything where you feel that your heart is being opened to the transforming love of God. That's what spiritual practices are. I think we often limit what we think they are, especially because we have bodies. We experience God through our bodies. So it's important that we have practices that help us make our bodies holy, that we eat right or exercise or any of those things. Those are all things that can be considered to be spiritual practices because they're opening us up to the transforming love of God. So um, in question 226 um, in your catechism book, let's turn to that. Um, what nurtures a fruitful life of prayer? And we are going to be mainly talking about prayer today, but I think this is really interesting. Um, my life of prayer is fed by the regular reading of scripture, practice of personal prayer, and corporate worship of God. And this is what I thought was really interesting. The ancient threefold rule of the church encourages weekly communion, the daily office, and private devotions to shape your life. And I think that is a very interesting way of looking at it. Um, other ways that this was, has been expressed, especially through um, monastic life, was the phrase ora et labora, which is pray and work. Um, it was through the monastic movement that the daily offices came about because there were fixed hours of prayer that the monks prayed. And when Cramner uh, put together his book of common prayer, he wanted everyone to be an, a monk in a sense. He, he wanted to take it out as some like uh, aesthetic that was only reserved for the very holy. And so that is why he developed the three daily offices, taking it from praying eight times a day to three times a day, morning, noon, and evening. And in the Reformation, it was an agrarian society. So these offices were held in the local church parish. And it was thought that everybody would come every morning you know, remember, a lot of people didn't own Bibles. I mean, very few people, unless you were wealthy, owned a Bible. So they would, so what, how he designed this is that people would come to morning prayer at the church. They could hear the scriptures read. They could pray corporately. And again, evening prayer. Uh, again, another service that people were welcome to come to. 
that doesn't actually fit our lifestyle in uh, contemporary 21st century necessarily. We don't have services here every day of the week, twice a day. Um, and so the offices of morning and evening prayer in your prayer book are really designed for public worship. Um, and I'll be talking about that in a little bit, but I, I want you to think when you look at the uh, offices in your prayer book, you think, oh my gosh, I have to do all of this. And no, that is not the idea at all. What we all, really all we are trying to do is establish a pattern of praying three times a day, even if it's just a short prayer in the morning when you wake up saying, Lord, thank you for the gift of life another day. You know, or at, at noon, just thanking him for guiding you and asking for the Holy Spirit to continue to guide you through the day. Or at Compline, asking for a peaceful night. It's really just more the idea that three times a day we're calling on God so that we can remember that it is he who is shaping and loving us. <clears throat> Another aspect of a rule of life is that it should always be focused on the community. So in our pattern of life that we live, we want to be looking to the needs of the community, uh, coming and worshiping corporately every Sunday to realize that our union in him is with all of us. We're not in this together. So prayer is one of the main topics that we are going to be talking about today. And again, all of these are practices. They're not techniques. Uh, they're practices that open us to the transforming work of the Spirit. So question 154, let's look at your books again. Um, this is really at the beginning. What is prayer? Prayer is turning my heart towards God to listen and to speak with him. So notice the first word is listen. Prayer is communication. We begin our prayer by listening to God. That is our desire. That is our motivation in praying. Uh, Dorothy Sayer talks about prayer. She talks about how it begins with the intellect and then it moves on to feeling and will and spirit. But it's not simply an intellectual process, as you know. So in your prayers, begin with listening. Begin by calling on the Father and Jesus. Um, there are words that you can pray. We've talked a lot in our church. We've had a lot of teachings about centering prayer. Um, our Father is just a beautiful way to start out your prayers. So again, there are many different kinds of prayer, which if you read the catechist, they will, catechism, they will be going over these. Uh, question 158 refers to praying the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, the collected prayers of the church, and my own prayers as the Spirit leads us. So the liturgical prayers are not meant to be an end in themselves. They are basically teaching us how to pray. They are a pattern for us. Often, um, we'll get to this in a minute when you look at the prayer book, but we can look at some of those prayers and they will touch our hearts in a way that then we can begin our own personal prayers. Um, they're never meant to be a substitute for our own prayers and our own words. And in question 232, um, it talks about how can you inwardly digest the scriptures? Of course, what is a part of daily prayer is reading the scriptures. 
And I love this answer too. I should meditate on scripture and let it shape my thought and prayers. As I absorb scripture, it deepens my knowledge of God, becomes a lens with which I understand my life and the world around me and guides my attitudes and actions. And I really encourage you when you're praying to use words of scripture if you read the word and you find a particular phrase that really pops out at you, use that phrase as a form of meditation. I know, again, I've talked a lot about Lectio Divina, but this is Lectio Divina is a part of our prayer. And you may not have time every day to go through all four steps, but as you read the scriptures, ask God to give you a word from the scripture that you can meditate on and that you can pray back to him. So there is a very long section in here on the Lord's Prayer. And I, there's no way we can go through that. This would take maybe three weeks or something to really go through it all the way. Um, it begins on, with question 160, if you want to turn to that. Um, I recommend that you look, read these later very carefully. And uh, because it says, why should you learn the Lord's Prayer? I should learn the Lord's Prayer because Jesus taught it to his disciples as both a practice and a pattern for prayer to God the Father. And um, many years ago when I was maybe about eight or nine and my uncle who I've talked about here before who was a Presbyterian minister came and came to say my bedtime prayers with me. And I always had this little prayer that I prayed, which was, now I lay me down to sleep, my father, you know, just really fast, and that was it, you know. And he said, hmm, wait a minute. Um, do, you, I, do you ever pray the Lord's Prayer? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? And so then he walked me through very carefully with each step of the Lord's Prayer and how it could be a pattern for my praying. And I've just never, ever forgotten that. And I'd that's what I'd like to dwell on a little bit here today. Um, so let's think about this. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, what is happening there? Does anybody want to offer? Recognizing his authority, yes. 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 Um, we are pronouncing our identity, that we belong to Christ, that we belong to his Father. Um, and I think why that's important to begin our prayer with is because we know then that we can come before the Father because we are in Christ. So we can freely pray, as it says in Hebrews, we can approach that holy place washed in the blood of Christ. And again, I think about Romans 8, which is one of my very favorite scriptures, where it talks about Abba, Father. Um, so you might pray, Our Father, and then pray, Abba, Father, and begin to worship who God is. Um, it says in Romans 8, again, By him we cry, Abba, Father. And so when we say, Our Father, we are actually stating our desire to want to grow into a deeper awareness of God's love and to know the Holy Spirit. So our Father is naming our identity, and that's a beautiful way to frame our prayer. And it, it leads us into worship and praise. So I'm, 
as I'm talking about this, I'm, I'm actually talking about if you want to pray the Lord's Prayer, to pray each phrase of the Lord's Prayer and perhaps enter into these practices as you pray. It's just a wonderful way to pray. And that's why the Lord has given it to us. Um, thy will be done, or thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily prayer. So when we acknowledge God's will be done, we're acknowledging that we want our lives to conform to God's life. Uh, a writer that I really like a lot, Marjorie Thompson, says, ultimately prayer is yielding our heart, mind, and will to God. A it, prayer is a participation in willing God's will. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, it is in heaven, we are framing our prayers and petitions in a way that is we are saying we, longing, we have a longing to be a part of God's work in establishing the kingdom of God. Um, and when we say give us our daily bread, it's interesting, uh, question 191 says, why should we pray for daily bread? It says, God calls me to trust him for the needs of each day. So this is a point where we could pray our own petitions for our needs for that day, and also to be concerned for the needs of others, to be content with what I have, and to grow in gratitude for his provision. So then when we come to, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, this is a time perhaps that we could enter into a time of self-examination. We could look back maybe on the day before and ask for ways in which we may have not participated in the life of the kingdom and ways in which we ask God for forgiveness. Um, we also can think about people that we need to forgive. And that's all a part of a kind of a self-examination we should be doing each day. Um, and then when we pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Um, we're praying for protection for the day. And there's a, a wonderful prayer that ends morning prayer, which I'll share with you in a minute, that kind of, in some sense, is what I pray in asking that I would be um, everything I do that day would be for his kingdom and for his glory and to, to um, ask me to protect myself from evil thoughts, um, from anxiety, uh, from ways in which I would want to engage in any activities that would lead me away from God. Um, and then finally, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Um, questions 222 and 223. Um, what does it mean, kingdom, power, and glory? Mirroring the first half of the Lord's prayer, the church rejoices that God is already reigning over all creation, working out his holy will and hallowing his name in earth and heaven. And again, this is a time when we could even perhaps uh, engage in another kind of self-examination, which is looking way, ways that you saw the kingdom of God unfolding, perhaps the day before or during that day. Um, I think that's one of the best ways we can come into a time of thanksgiving. We can thank God for maybe perhaps someone who hugged us or blessed us or communicated to us the same love that Christ has for us. 
just ways that we see, or perhaps we um, read an article about all the different churches that are coming around and um, taking on, you know, basically millions of refugees from Ukraine. These are ways we can thank God. These are ways we can see that his kingdom is coming and that it is here. So I recommend this to you. I recommend you read the part in here about the Lord's Prayer. But again, I want you to understand that prayer is a gift of time we are giving God. Don't expect great results. Don't expect, oh my gosh, I didn't feel God today. I must have really failed. Or I really had trouble like daydreaming or something like that. God's just happy that you came to him and said, here I am. So now we're going to really actually get out our prayer books and um, look at them. We actually have quite a bit of time for that left. Um, but first, are there any questions about what I've shared so far? Okay. Well, here's our prayer books. Um, first, I'd like to talk a little bit about why we use liturgy. Again, that is in question 244. Um, what is liturgy? Liturgy is an established pattern or form of worship of God's people. The liturgy leads us in the remembrance of God's mighty acts and unites us to grateful response. And it says... Question 245, why do Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy? Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy because it is embodies biblical patterns of worship, fosters and reverence and love for God, deepens our faith in Jesus Christ, and is in continuity with the practices of Israel and the early church. I always laugh when people say, well, I go to a New Testament church and we don't have any liturgy. I'm like... Uh, well, you think the Jews didn't have a liturgy? <laughs> so, um, but anyway, it's, liturgy is the gift that God gave his people way back, you know, in the Old Testament when he uh, ordered the system of sacrifices and gave the, peop uh, the church the, the psalms as the prayer book. I mean, there's liturgy all throughout the seasons, the festivals of the Jewish people, they had liturgies for those days. You know, they didn't just get up and, you know, wave their tambourines. <laughs> they had certain specific things they would pray and do those days. So liturgy has always been with us. But um, again, it has to do with habit. You know, um, James Smith, uh, in his book, um, You Are What You Love, talks a lot about habit and liturgy, and he says that we are liturgical animals. Um, that's kind of a uh, something that's stuck in my head. And we are liturgical animals. We like liturgies. We have our own daily liturgies, whether we like it or not. If you go to a church that is not liturgical, they have a liturgy. Believe me, they do the same things every week. They might spend 35 minutes in praise and worship. They might spend an hour listening to a sermon. Um, but it's, it's still a liturgy. Okay, um, because 
the reason is, is that we are just creatures of habit and we want to have patterns that help us grow. Um, and so liturgical texts teach us habits for the soul. And we learn by doing also. So our, all our liturgical actions make, we're embodied people. So when you, if you hopefully come to the instructed Eucharist, you'll learn a little bit more. Father James will share why he has some of the motions that he uses uh, when he's blessing the bread during the Eucharist. So we have, we're embodied people. So we have actions that we do that help us practice. And I always think of the Eucharist, the Sunday Eucharist, where we come to church and we worship God together. And there's always a special energy in that. And we give thanks and we pray together and we confess our sins and then we go and receive the body and blood of Christ. That's a pattern for our whole life. And we learn that pattern. Um, a long time ago, I had an epiphany and it was that I was listening. I was at a conference with Rich and some guy got up and he was, I kind of get what he was trying to get at, but he said, you know, he wanted to talk about grace. So he said, well, God doesn't care about what you do. You just want to live in his grace. And I thought, I don't think that's quite it. But um, I thought, you know, this is impossible to figure out in your head. It really is in a way that on the one hand, yes, God doesn't care what we do. He loves us despite anything. There's nothing we can do once we're in Christ to separate us from the love of Christ. But yet on the other hand, you know, he kind of does care how we live our lives. So, and then all of a sudden it hit me. You know, I don't really think about that anymore because I go every week to church and I confess my sins and I receive God's grace. And it's just in my soul now. I don't have to try to figure it out. I just know it. And that's what I think is part of the beauty of liturgy. So, um, let us open now our prayer books and we will take a look at those. Any other questions, comments? And if you want to push back or you want to offer maybe a testimony of your own, I'd be glad to hear it. Right. Yes. Right. And spontaneity is always there. We are always free to be spontaneous. And thank you. Uh, the comment was that thank you for mentioning that everyone has habits and that she's heard this and also often heard liturgy referred to as something wrote and dead. And, you know, I think it has to do again with intention. I, I know the first time that my husband, Rich, he grew up in the Episcopal Church, and he always told me before we started coming to the Anglican Church that um, he wanted his money back um, because he was never taught the gospel. Um, but then we, the first time we went to, which was Church of the Resurrection in 1990, and he walked in and he goes, oh my gosh, I've never heard it like this before. That guy up there really means what he's saying. And he's saying it slowly. And the people that are responding are responding with their hearts. 
And I think that is the difference between rote liturgy and living liturgy, is that we have this intention when we participate in the liturgy that we are really participating in the spirit, um, not just reading words on a page. Yes, Teresa. I don't think for those of you listening to the recording heard that, but Teresa mentioned the beauty of liturgy, that the liturgy gives us words when we've run out of words. And I think that's really beautiful. And that is so much of, you know, sometimes you get up in the morning and I have to open up my prayer book to give me the words that I need to say to God. Otherwise, you know, they're not necessarily in me, you know. So thank you for that, Teresa. Um, so, Mary, yes. Thank you. With that, I think that's a great question. Um, the question was, how do we fight complacency? And I think is that we just switch it up. That's basically what we do. And. Um, I'm going to show you how you can do that in your prayer books, okay? So, so, um, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, yes. made a good point too is that um, it's okay if we don't do um, morning prayer according to the prayer book I'm just going to use that as an example it's okay to let things go dormant for a while because maybe you need to again practices are not done under compulsion they are done because we want to open our hearts to the transforming work of God and sometimes that means we put our prayer book away we we go for a walk, or we listen to Christian music, or we do something different, whatever it is that would help you open your hearts to God again. Um, that's so important. And then many of us also go through what we call the dark night of the soul, where it does feel dead to us. But even with that, we're not to lose hope that one day it might seem more alive to us. And if we're going through, I mean, there's a whole theology of the dark night of the soul with St. John of the Cross. And believe me, it's real. I know it's real. I think I went through a very dark night of the soul beginning two years ago, for about a year and a half, where I think everything I felt like I believed in was taken away from me in one sense. And that is different from depression. I just heard um, a good talk about this on Wednesday night. Because in depression, you think, Life has always been horrible. I could never, you know, it's just, it's utter despair. But in the dark night of the soul, you actually can still have hope because you still believe in God and you know that there was a time when you 
felt that God was real to you and that someday in the future you will have that again. And that's what going through the dark night of the soul is. It's a period of self-examination and crying out to God, even if you can't feel him. So what were you going to say? Yes. Yes. Right. Um, I liked what you said about Dark Night of the Soul is more of a grieving process as opposed to depression, which is a physiological mental state that it needs to be treated with medication or with counseling. You know, we should never ever say, you know, we just need to pray more or something if we're in a depressive state. But Dark Night of the Soul, grieving, I was reminded again at this talk I heard that was about the depression and the dark night of the soul, that C.S. Lewis, I don't know how many of you have read A Grief Observed, and that is an ex excellent example of a dark night of the soul, because he was angry with God, and he was talking honestly with God, but through it all, you never really see him saying, I'm, I'm over with it, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. You know, there is you know, in the end of the book, it really resolves itself. Some people read that book and they think, how could C.S. Lewis have written this? Well, you know, that's the life of the Christian. <laughs> you know, we live with doubt sometimes. We have, we get angry when things happen to us that we wish God could have stopped them from happening. But, you know, it's, it's a grieving process. So I appreciate that a lot, those comments. But let's move on now. We've got, mm, ooh, gosh. Just about five more minutes. So this is going to be pretty quick. Um, so again, as I mentioned earlier, when you look at daily morning prayer and you see how much is here, you know, it's again, first of all, there's lots of choices. This is page 11 in your prayer books. This is lots of choices. It's not meant that you go through and do everything, but it gives you a form. It gives you a architecture for prayer more than anything in the morning. And I, you know, I have been using, um, using these booklets, developing these for about 10 years now for the church because I think it's a really wonderful tool. It's from the prayer book, but it's just a more simplified form in your daily uh, lives of praying the daily office. Um, uh, the prayer that, um, you know, some of these prayers I really do, as the 
catechism recommends, some prayers are worth memorizing. Um, the prayer that has special significance to me, and again, this has to do praying um, that we would not be tempted, is the conclusion, which is the prayer of grace in your prayer book. Lord God Almighty and everlasting Father, you have brought us safely to this new day. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity. And in all we do, direct us to the fulfilling of your will and your purpose. That's a prayer that's worth memorizing. That's a prayer that's worth when you're getting up, praying that prayer if you don't have time to do anything else. Um, so at the end of on page 22, um, there's a collect that you could pray differently every day if you wish to. The collect of the week, um, if you don't, if you have a prayer book, um, they are located um, on page 642, and oh, that, that is the, excuse me, that's the occasional prayers. Um, but they're, they're in the prayer book. Always look at the table of contents. Um, Collects and occasional prayers. Collects for the Christian year on page 598. You'll be able to find the collect of the week. However, we also put it in your bulletin every week in the insert that we give you. And in the prayer book, you also can find the lectionary on page 717. So if for some reason you're not at church or you need to know what the daily lectionary is. We are in year C, and so you go to year C, and you know it's, it's ordered according to the church calendar. So year C, um, there are for Monday of Easter week, for instance, and then we have the second century of Easter, second Sunday of Easter. These are this is the lectionary for the church. And then we have the daily lectionary, um, which is very easily set up, actually, on page 738. And this does not go according to a year. It is just simply the same yearly lectionary that's used daily um, for every year. And this is a lot of reading. And so what I always suggest to people is that they, if you want to take scripture a little bit more slowly and in bite size, which is really my preference, um, choose one of these, either from evening prayer or morning prayer, as a track that you're going to keep up with a continuous reading each day. If you want to read the Bible in a year, here is the plan, okay? You don't need to go out and buy a special Bible. It's right here. This takes you through the Old Testament um, in a year, and it takes you through the New Testament twice, and it takes you to the, through the Psalter, the entire Psalter, every 30 days. So if you are one who really likes to want to get the big picture, I always recommend at least once in your life read through the whole Bible because it's really an important thing to have a scope. But if you like to take it in more bite size, you can kind of pick and choose, but I really advise reading something continuously. So on page 33 is midday prayer, and on page 57 is compline. But another thing I really want to point out to you in your prayer books is on page 67 is family prayer. 
And um, I, I love that they put this in here because it gives you a pattern for praying with your children at home or your families or even just your own personal prayers. Again, the way daily morning prayer and evening prayer and complying is in the, it's really intended more for a full public service. Um, but of course, naturally you can still pray as much of it as you want to at home, but some people really like using family prayer and family prayer includes prayers from midday, morning, early evening and at the close of the day. So um, if you have a prayer book, I would really recommend looking at that family prayer to use as a devotional. The other thing I wanted to uh, point out to you again is um, the collects. And this kind of speaks to what, um, uh, if you turn to page 642 in your prayer books, this kind of speaks to again what Teresa was saying about sometimes you just need words you don't have and what um, and then how you could also not be praying the same prayers every day but if you look here there are some beautiful um, categories I would especially um, personal devotion prayers that are on 644 prayers for personal life uh, prayers of thanksgiving, these are all, these collects are really beautiful. I mean, they are amazing. If you see us praying, like for instance, our prayer for the rector search, that comes from the prayer book. So I, you know, I recommend you get your own prayer book if you can. Um, I actually opted for this leatherette version because it lies really nicely. Um, and it has little bookmarks, but it's a little bit more expensive, but you can get these prayer books. Pardon? Yeah. It, yeah, and it's also online. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other thing is the Psalter. It is gorgeous, and it's not. And I really recommend if you're doing the Psalms to read it from the Psalter, not from go online if you don't have a prayer book, and get the Psalms and download them. You can download all the Psalms into a PDF for your computer or your iPhone, because these are. Psalms were, they were the Coverdale Psalms, which was the original Psalms and the original prayer book, but they've been updated. And uh, a group of Hebrew scholars uh, that the ACNA put together have, this is basically the new Coverdale Psalms. And they are so different, I have to tell you, than reading the Psalms from the NIV or um, ESV, because they're really written to be sung, chanted, and prayed, not studied. So I really encourage you at least to get the psalms and use those psalms in your Psalter. So I think we have run out of room. It is 12.18, run out of time. But if you've got any, you're dismissed, but if you've got any more questions, please feel free to ask and stay. And thank you for your attention today. <laughs>